Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 193 of the Speaking Club podcast. I want to start this show with a quote from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi and his book, Flow, The Psychology of Optimal Experience. And this quote is about what happens when you're in flow. Loss of self-consciousness does not involve a loss of self and certainly not a loss of consciousness, but rather only a loss of consciousness of the self. What slips below the threshold of awareness is the concept of self, the information we use to represent to ourselves who we are. And being able to forget who we are seems to be very enjoyable. When not preoccupied with ourselves, we actually have a chance to expand the concept of who we are. Loss of self-consciousness can lead to self-transcendence, to a feeling that the boundaries of our being have been pushed forward. And that's what I want for you. The confidence and clarity in your content and delivery so that when you speak, you are simply focused on your message and your audience and your self-consciousness leaves you. And everyone is changed as a result in some small way. I started this podcast for two reasons, because I want to help people recognize the power of stories and humor in speaking, and because I believe it's your message that counts, not the number of ums and ahs you use. There are some organizations that want to create robot speakers. They want you to sacrifice your personality in order to speak perfectly. But I want to let you know that you can be yourself and a sensational speaker. So, if you want to be a speaker that connects and engages authentically through stories, a speaker that gives value as well as a great performance, then welcome home. Hey, how are you? I hope you're having a good week. hope you're working on your speaking, your storytelling, and all that good stuff. What have I been up to? Well, I've been watching The Walking Dead. I'm way behind, but we're just catching up. And when I was watching, though, an episode the other day, do you know what I thought? Wouldn't it be brilliant to have a simpler, more peaceful life, free from technology? But then someone got eaten, and I realised that technology is preferable to flesh-eating zombies. But we do have a choice today. We don't need to be slaves to social media. Now, as you know... One of the main things I teach people is how to get and keep people's attention. And that's because in today's world, it's more precious and valuable than gold. Social media companies employ genius minds to work out better ways to keep us in the matrix. And all of us are bombarded with notifications, information, entertainment and so much choice. So not only is it harder to get people's attention, it's harder for us all to pay attention. Yet without time that's free from distraction, we will never get our best work done. And that's why I've brought this show back into focus for you. It's one of the first 50 shows I released, and I believe it's one of my best. Graham Olcott is a productivity expert, but it wasn't always that way. And in this show, you'll find out how he got productive and he's since helped thousands of people get their life and work back under control. Enjoy. 
author of How to Be a Productivity Ninja, entrepreneur, speaker, and podcaster, Graham Alcott. Welcome to the Speaking Club. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I, I, you've done lots of things. I've had a look. You've got about three websites going on, I think, at the moment with different bits and pieces. Hard to keep track, yeah. Yeah, it's very impressive. But I wondered if you could give me, because you haven't always um, specialised in productivity, I don't think. I wondered if you could give me a brief history of you and what led you to focus on productivity and what you do today. Yeah, so the history of me was I used to be in the charity world, um, at quite a young age, I ended up running a, a small national charity called Student Volunteering England um, after spending quite a few years. I basically got into it because I was a, I was doing lots of volunteering when I was a student and then ran the volunteering service at University of Birmingham, which is where I was a student, and then got this national job, um, which was a really fascinating thing because I was 26 or 27 and running this thing, being invited to Parliament every week and the phone going in the first week of my job and it was it's the department of education the minister wants to see you and just stuff like this it was really crazy at a very young age and um, so I did that and then my plan was to go freelance from uh doing that for a little while and do you know training and consultancy on a freelance basis within again within the kind of charity world youth leadership world all that sort of stuff where I had a lot of contacts and one day I, during my freelance you know sort of first period of being a freelancer I had a great idea I looked up from my desk and had this reflex of, okay, who's going to help me do this? And then I was like, oh, no, I'm on my own. I'm now a freelance. I don't have a team. And I'd gone from having a really great team with great operations manager, a great PA, like people who could help me to take my ideas and make them happen. And suddenly realized that because I didn't have that and I was on my own, it was testing me. And I realized, oh, I'm not very good at productivity, basically. Just not very good at taking those ideas and putting them in the kind of structured form and, and following things through to conclusion and all that sort of stuff. So that was really where the business was born from was me working on myself and realizing that I got away. I got away with it for quite a few years of having great ideas, uh, letting lots of other people do most of the work and then calling it leadership. I kind of got away with it and realized that actually my own productivity needed, needed help. Um, so I just start, I did lots of reading and books and blogs and everything I could find and, uh, really found systems that worked well for me and just, you know, sort of took bits and pieces and bits of inspiration from every book I could find and everything else and developed my own systems that seemed to work for me. Uh, and then just fell, in, fell into teaching it. And I think it's good to teach the things that you struggled to learn yourself because you empathize with the path that everyone else is on. And I think that's, that really stood me in good stead for when I did the book, How to Be a Productivity Indian, because everyone says about that book, they say, it's like you're lifting up my skull and looking to my brain and you can tell. It's like, yeah, because I've been there and I've, I've had those same challenges. So uh, that was really how it was born. One of the things I was going to say, actually, I noticed that you mentioned about how you had a team and, and I know you sort of downplayed the fact that you could delegate, but actually that strength that you had before you went out onto your own is something people struggle with you know, I can see the productivity stuff on your yeah. delegation yeah. is actually an aspect of productivity that's really important. And so many people struggle with when they make that step up to a management or leadership position. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I remember learning the lesson um, probably much later than I could have done. I probably learned that lesson more with my own business than I did in the charity world where I was delegating a lot of stuff. Um, but I don't think I was necessarily delegating it as well in the charity world, but I definitely learned that lesson in my own business of you have to really detach the ego from how you delegate and you really have to 
delegate the final outcome rather than the method and let people figure out their own methods. And, you know, I think it's very easy to delegate stuff and then get into micromanaging or get into, um, you know, falling in love with your process rather than the process that needs to happen. Um, so yeah, I think I've become like, I've, I've, I've always found that easy, but I think I've sort of become better at it over the years, just in terms of helping people to, uh, have ownership for what they're working on rather than just them having ownership of doing it how you want it to be done if that makes sense and is that something that forms part of what your your team teaches today just I'm just interested um I think it can do so a lot of what a lot of what think productives work is about is looking at how you take an idea through to the point where that turns into projects and actions and, and getting clarity over what you're doing often that involves working with other people and you can really get over the barriers of procrastination um, through clarity in a, re- in a really big way that creates a lot of momentum. And, you know, so often if you're looking at, a, you know, you're fleshing out a massive event or a massive project, it just naturally helps to have that clarity over it because then you can delegate much more easily. Um, and I think, you know, once, once you can get that, that sense of, of momentum on something, it, you know, like that also helps to just get other people you know, around that idea and kind of get people on the same page and getting people sort of thinking about what the outcome is in the same way that you would think about it, if that makes sense. So often once you kick off a project, it's much easier to be sort of delegating stuff where people are moving in the right direction together sort of thing. And, And so you, were there any particular aspects of productivity specifically that you struggled with when you found yourself working, you know, as a, as a sort of solo person? Um, and what were they? Um, I think, most of that is evident by uh, looking at what my desk would have looked like, uh, <laughs> which was just piled full of the, you know, the piles of doom on the desk and all that stuff. Um, my email inbox was another thing. There was an interesting point where, so my number two actually in um, in that charity was a, an amazing woman called Lizzie, and we worked really well together because I could do the the kind of strategic thinking stuff really well and she could do the detail action orientated like turning stuff into things like just brilliantly and so as a team um you know we were pretty unstoppable for a while it was it's i think it's really amazing i have someone else uh, who i work with like that now um called elena in, in think productive but i think when you find those partnerships that can really work you know it like it and it's so much better than the sum of its parts it's amazing but i remember anyway lizzie said to me um so she'd worked with me for sort of three or four years uh, within the charity and then she was working with me as me being a freelancer and bringing me in and she said I don't know what you're doing around productivity but you never used to answer your emails and now you do uh-huh. what's changed and that was one of those moments it's like oh yeah things are really starting to you know to change in how in how I operate so I used to be going in on a Saturday morning to try and catch up with the mountain of email and and trying to deal with the sort of paperwork and the admin and you know, all the stuff that um, I think a lot of people, particularly when you're in kind of management and leadership type positions, you really struggle with getting your work done because you're spending so much of your time trying to help everybody else to, to be good at what they're doing. Um, and that really started to change when I, when, I, when I started to think about productivity and develop my own systems, it just became much easier. And so how, did, how long did it take you to develop your own systems? And what were you doing? Were you sort of cherry picking from the things that you'd read that resonated with you? Or you was literally, I'm trying this out, going to see what happens, uh, sort, of an, a, sort of experimentation, if you like. 
Yeah, cherry picking, adapting. Um, sort of, I uh, did a year of um, productivity experiments where I every month just did a different extreme productivity thing, and and just to, just to see how that would go. So I think it's an ongoing, um, you know, sort of exercise. Really, I my, part of my belief is when it comes to productivity, nobody gets it perfect ever. Um, I I really reject all of the the kind of books and and TED talks and approaches that start from this perspective of I am the guru I'm perfect be a bit more like me and you'll be great I just don't buy that stuff at all so I, I really start from the point of view of everyone's human um, everyone's fallible everyone screws this up sometimes and actually if you start from there I just think it's much more interesting because suddenly it's like there's always an improvement opportunity somewhere there's always something that you can change and get better. Um, there's never an end point, but it's, you know, the process is the interesting bit, I think, for me. Um, so, yeah, like having, an, uh, but I guess at the same time, there are certain ge- general rules of the road, right? So general uh, principles in terms of how you see information, how many times you touch information, how often you get your inbox to zero, how often you review your own, what I call second brain. So your kind of setup of projects and actions and your waiting for list and all this kind of stuff. And one, once you once you figure out that, actually it really helps to just do a general review of that stuff every one to two weeks, then, you know, that's just a really good little rule to follow. So there are rules, um, but there's also, I think, always the opportunity to kind of chip away at how good you are and get slightly better and slightly better as you go along. So would it be, you know, those people that say, oh, you know, I'm really just, I'm really disorganized. I haven't found anything that works for me. It's it's not that you necessarily become a different person. You just have to find a system that works for you. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm a naturally very disorganized person. Uh, my sort of nat- my natural style and the way my mind tends to think is very conceptual, not very practical. Uh, everything's in the abstract until it becomes real, right? It's all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think it's fine for your mind to work like that, um, you know, four days a week. If on the fifth day of that working week, you run that through a structure and you, you know, and you just take stock of that. So I'll have like, you know, bits of paper and stuff that are just on the desk. But once a week that goes into, uh, you know, an in-basket and it's like literally I just process that and put that all into, uh, into my different apps and, and places that I keep stuff, you know. So uh, as long as you're doing that on a, on a fairly regular basis, then um, you can be as disorganized as you like. So your desk can be as messy as you like. Um, but I think once you get into that way of thinking, I think naturally my desk is generally much tidier than it used to be. Um, you know, just because you're in that habit of, of whenever you see something, you're seeking out the clarity within it or you're seeking out the action that needs to be taken within a thing. Um, so it's just easier to, it's easier to do that upfront rather than to have these things lagging around and yeah. creating a bit more uncertainty for you. That's interesting because you use the word habit there and I use the word system. Uh, habits more important than systems, if you like, or, or do they both need to go together? I think systems help you to develop your habits, right? So if you've got systems that you're following and you know there are certain things that work, then what happens is you start to, you know, you start to have confidence in that and then you start to, you know, to sort of apply that more regularly and start to come back to the systems more regularly. Often you have really great systems and then you just abandon them or you just don't use them. Um, and so you can have great confidence in them for a week, but it's not going to develop a habit. Whereas if you get into a, a sort of good momentum with, with those various systems. So one thing I mentioned, well, I mentioned a couple of things. So the getting your inbox to zero is, is for me, that's a system, but it creates a habit where you want to do that all the time. Uh, coming back and reviewing your projects and actions on a kind of one to two week kind of basis 
again, it's one of those things that it starts off as a little systemic thing with a checklist, and then it becomes something that just habitually you want to do, and you know you get motivated to keep doing. Um, so I think they really they feed each other, um, and for me, learning it a, a lot of it was me railing against every sort of aspect of my own personality. Um, but that's totally fine, right? Like it's because I th- because ultimately it works. Um, and then there are other aspects of the way I think and and my personality that I think are really useful for strategy and creativity and problem solving and all these kind of other things. Um, and so, yeah, it's, you get you get to play to your strengths as well, right? That's cool. No, I think it's brilliant that you a lot. And I read a lot of the reviews of your book, and one thing that does come through is you saying, you know, you're not. A lot of people say it's brilliant the way that he doesn't position himself as a guru, you know, and that's sort of what you said before. Um, oh, that's nice. I, I haven't read them for years, so I, it's nice that they're saying that. Yeah, yeah, no, no, they're, they're, <laughs> Thanks they're, for they're back. pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I, I yeah, so. I guess there's lots I'm going to talk to you about, you know, sort of tease out some more tips around productivity, but tell me, how did the company come around uh, or come into being? And I also want to find out about the Ninja. So can we, can we talk about the Ninja first and then sort yeah, of, sure. or which came first, the Ninja or the company? So the company came first and uh, the basic answer to where did the Ninja then come from was we law I did a really, uh, I did, I did, on the one hand, a really stupid thing, and on the one hand, a really clever thing, um, and they were both the same, which was I left the, the charity freelancing stuff that I was doing and decided to set up a business about productivity that was essentially a training business um, at the absolute apex of the 2008-2009 financial crash. Yeah. So ridiculously stupid trying to set up a business in the time when no one's going to be buying training. It's always the first thing that gets cut. Um, But the wise aspect of that same decision was me saying, once people have budget again, this is what they're going to need because everyone's going to be, we've now got 20 people when we used to have 40 and we're trying to do the same. And even now, like, so even nearly 10 years after that crash, I'm still hearing that phrase, we've got to do more with less. And it's like become this kind of mantra thing, you know? Um, So we started the business and we realized that what was happening around us was a lot of other training businesses were going to the wall and they had huge infrastructures and people and, and stuff that they needed to keep feeding and they weren't able to feed. And we were young and nimble and light on our feet and there was only a couple of us and whatever. Um, but we realized that in order to differentiate ourselves, we needed some kind of way of saying the word trainer that was not the word trainer or that was not consultant. Uh, and it just needed to be so different that it's stuck in people's heads. So we wrote basically a massive list and most of the things on that list were terrible. Um, <laughs> well, go, give me some of the other ones. They're like office them. doctors, I think was one of them. Like just all these different um, different ways of kind of saying, we're on a mission, we're going to come in and, and sort you out and, and help you with stuff. Um, but just in a way that was a bit more friendly and fun. Um, and Ninja actually felt like the most daring one on the list. It felt like the, the one that was the most... Uh, risky to do that we'd have the most pushback from where we'd probably risk having people who quite uh, liked the prospect of working with us and then we said we're called ninjas and they'd be like oh you know go away uh, in the nicest possible terms Um, and actually we've probably had three instances of that in 10 years of um, or in nearly 10 years uh, of people saying we really like what you're doing but we couldn't take the idea of a ninja seriously we probably have about three of those and in that same period, we've had dozens saying, 
we just hired you because you're the ninjas, right? So it's a little bit Marmite um, and it seems to have worked. And so, yeah, that, that was really how it came about. So it came about first as, a, as, as basically a job title for our, our trainers to go in and do the work. Um, and then it just felt like the obvious thing to call um, a short um, uh, sort of keynote uh, piece that we developed. And then it just felt like the obvious name for the book. And I think the book's probably become the best known of, of all the things that I've done really is, you know, that book has been a, a bestseller around the world, been translated into different languages and, and all this kind of thing. So I'm kind of known as the ninja guy, even though the company is called Think Productive, so it's called something totally different. Um, but the ninja kind of thing, thing seems to have been the thing that stuck. Um, and the original image was... Um, a real lesson also in uh, good design being really important for all kind of businesses, including, you know, speakers and trainers and everything else, because, you know, the design is literally like a post-it note with some little Brilliant. bulldog. Yeah. You know, it's so simple. We just got a really good designer uh, called Alan Burrell, who we worked with on that. And um, I honestly, that, that little ninja guy has opened so many doors over the years. Uh, and I think for me, that was probably more money than, than I'd ever spent on design in my life. And it felt like, again, a massive risk at the point that we invested that, but man, has it paid off. So that's another thing to, uh, you know, for everyone out there is the importance of design and getting the design right to kind of position what the business is trying to do and what it's trying to say. See, I, I love, you know, the whole thing about when I work with some of my clients, the one thing I say to them, and, I've, and, and so many other people say this, is don't be afraid to be polarizing because that's when yeah. you attract the people that you want to work with as, you know, as well as want to work with you and perhaps repel those that, don't, that you don't even want to work with. So I'm wondering if those three that said we don't like the ninja thing, probably you were quite happy to walk away from anyway. Yeah, I mean, it's always, it's always a bit of a blow, isn't it? You know, <laughs> especially when you've done lots of work uh, you know, getting them on board and, and, you know, and, and, and kind of telling them what you do. And then they say, Oh, actually we've run this by people and they don't think they'll take it seriously. And it's like, okay, you know, if really you're stuck at that, then, you know, so it's, it's always upsetting. You're never happy about that. But, um, but like I say, you have to take the rough with the smooth. And I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, there's always those quotes that say something along the lines of, you know, if, if nobody, if nobody's giving you bad reviews, then you're not, you're not trying hard enough or, you know, in order to make an impact, some people are not going to like what you do and all those kind of quotes. And I think it's, it's always important to keep that in mind. Like I think, so I talk a lot um, in our workshops about, um, cre you know, creativity and risk and the idea of the lizard brain, this part of our brain that basically shouts us at us whenever we're doing something that's a bit risky or feels a bit nervy. Um, and sometimes creativity is really inhibited by the procrastination that comes from that part of the brain saying, just play it safe, do it like everybody else does it. Like don't take risks, don't, don't do anything that's innovative or, or different. And, you know, actually often the stuff where your lizard brain is making that noise is the stuff that ends up being the stuff that really matters, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a brilliant, uh, a brilliant point. And, and so I just want to say people uh, listening to go and check out, uh, think, productive and the little ninja because it is genius it's like it's made up of stuff around you find you find around the office which is yeah it's, it's really good piece of design i shall have to check uh, alan bowl out um cool and what do you think are the main things or you know what what are the main things that you see people struggling with time and time again in terms of productivity um, so it's all the classic stuff, really. So it's we work in an open plan office. We're expected to be on email all the time. Uh, we've got too much communication. We've got information overload. 
um, you know, and ultimately we're usually also trying to do too much or, you know, we've got too much on for the number of people um, that are in the room and, and all those kind of things. Um, meetings is another big one. I've really seen an uptake over the last couple of years. A lot more people trying to figure out how to cut down the time that's spent in meetings. I just think it's astounding. I was saying to someone the other day how um, I, I just have this brain that just thinks about efficiency all the time. Um, just from a kind of, it just satisfies me when things are done in a really efficient way. But also just like I can't walk upstairs in my house if there's something downstairs that needs to go upstairs. It's just like I've got to, you know, I have a little, a little part at the top of the stairs and a little part at the bottom of the stairs and they go, you know, and all of that. And, and I do think when you apply that kind of brain to the idea of meetings, when you think how, how much each of those people in the room are being paid, how much the room costs, you know, uh, every five minutes in there is just stupid money. When you when you look at that against how much people moan about spending too much on, you know, an away day or biscuits or whatever, um, it, it's mind-blowing how much time is wasted in meetings. So I've, I've seen a lot of that over the last couple of years, particularly of just people really starting to focus on how can we do this differently? How can we cut down on meetings? You know, what are our, what are our sort of tips and tricks there? And a lot of it's digital transformation as well. A lot of people are really starting to think about how do we use stuff like, you know, Office 365, or how do we how do we incorporate Slack without it just being a thing that kind of takes over from everything else? And, you know, so just those kind of technological questions. And what's interesting to me is they're never really technological questions. They're, they're people questions and thinking questions. You know, it's how do, how do we allow people to think about their thinking? And how do we do that in ways that they can then collaborate on their thinking? You know, it's, it's, always, it's always about the brains behind it rather than which piece of software they should buy or not. I was going to say, I, I would imagine, and I know having spent many hours myself researching software, is that you can almost get stuck in this of looking at the software and seeing what it does and comparing software against software and spend hours and wastes, you know, procrastinating when you need to think about what are your, you know, what do you need it to do for you? And then yeah. go out and shop and, and just pick. Whereas it's, it seems like we sort of do the reverse, which is, you know, is what you're saying. Um, think about what you need it for first, presumably. Yeah. And it's the 80, 20 rule as well. What are the, what are the three things that it really needs to do? Yeah. And are we doing those really well? Um, and you can almost discard a lot of the the other sort of functionality with these things. I think um, often the you know, people always ask me what's the silver bullet when it comes to productivity. What's the secret sauce? Uh, and I would say there is no secret sauce. But if there was one, it would just be doing the simple things consistently and well. Um, you know, so even just uh, you know getting people to a place where they're using email really well. Uh, I think the amount of organisations as well that we work with that they're using Microsoft Office. And they've never had any training on how to use Outlook or on Word. Or and there's just simple little tips and tricks in there that once you, once you grab hold of those, they just make everything else. You know, every day that you're sending emails, every day that you're using Microsoft Word or whatever, um, those days just become easier and easier because you're just doing these simple things really well. Um, Microsoft are really, uh, really uh, good at hiding their best functionality under ribbons and out of the way and, <laughs> yeah. and, and for a very good reason because they want to be the company that can scale because you can pick it up and you don't need any training but then actually once you start to see what else it can do you know they're they're phenomenal products in what they can do if you've had the training and you've kind of invested the time in it and all that sort of stuff brilliant so what i'm going to ask you you know 
I want to talk about attention management as well, but I want to ask, you know, of those things that you said people struggle with most, you know, and, and having said, get the basics, right. What are the sort of three tips you'd give people, you know, if you're going to focus on three things to improve your productivity, if you, if you're all over the place, what are the three things they really need to focus in on first to get right? Yeah. I mean, so I think, um, I mean, one, so I have, I have a thing in the middle of the book, um, called the core productivity model, and it basically has four different habits. So I'll cheat and say four. Um, <laughs> so the first one is just capturing and collecting information. Um, often we have our best ideas when we're in the shower or walking the dog or whatever. So having good systems in place to be able to capture those ideas, to be able to, to then run that through later, um, organizing. So asking yourself regular upfront, good questions about every, every email, every piece of information, everything you've written down, um, every piece of post, you know, to have systems in place so that all that stuff goes through a bit of a ringer and comes out with either a, a yes or a no, it needs an action. And if it does need an action, what is the action? And just making those decisions um, as often as you can. Um, the review piece, so, you know, um, every day doing a little review of, of how's my energy, checking in with me, what do I want to do today? What, what does a good day look like? Um, and my my ritual for, for the daily review is getting it all down onto one of these, like a little post-it note. So the idea is that you focus like that far down. There's something really interesting in productivity about constraint. Um, oh, you know, yes. that whole sort of necessity is the mother of invention thing. And I think it's so easy to see, you know, these huge lists and all this stuff as, as actually distracting. Whereas if you then on a daily basis, just break that down into what does today look like? What does is, what is success look like today? Um, and then on a weekly basis, doing a bit more of that kind of hard um, strategic level thinking around projects and actions and where is each project up to and kind of being your own project manager on that stuff. Um, and then the final one is just having good habits around, I guess, recognizing your own lizard brain shouting at you, recognizing um, your own lack of energy on certain days, um, but just having good habits around around the do phase of that. So actually kind of self-managing and kind of recognizing when you need to uh, be your own sergeant major or, or be your own counsellor. Um, you know, both of those are needed at different times, right? So just having that good uh, kind of self-management psychology as well. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. And so let's talk about attention management. What, what do you mean by that when you say that? Um, so you can't manage time. Um, all you can do is manage attention. And I think this is uh, something particularly over the last few years, I think we're in an attention crisis and I think attention has become um, such a precious resource. It was already a much more precious resource than time because typically what I say in the book is you have two to three hours of what I call proactive attention. So the time in your day where you're really switched on, you're really able to focus, you're really able to get the best out of yourself. It's two to three hours in the day, like let's be honest. So managing that time really well becomes a really critical thing. Um, but also in recent years, what I've also noticed is that attention is even more at threat than ever before. Um, so I've been doing a lot of thinking at the moment. I'm actually just writing an extra chapter to go into the five-year anniversary of Productivity Ninja, which gets released next year. And the extra chapter is, I want to call it, I don't think I'm going to get away with this. Uh, <laughs> this is my editor next week. I want to, I want to call it how to not about with your phone. Um, oh, I don't think I'm going to allow the swear, right? So I've got to, I've got to figure that out. Um, but basically, I've really noticed it over the last year or so um, the phone has become the new open plan office. And what I mean by that is the phone is the new excuse that people give that they say is outside of their control, but is not. So if you're in an open plan office, you can go and sit and work in the coffee shop around the corner. You can go and sit in the cupboard. Um, you know, the, you, you have control and autonomy to a certain extent of being able to up and leave, particularly if you work on a laptop and not on a, 
a plumbed-in desktop, you know, which is most people these days. Um, so, you know, it, it's often that thing that people use as the kind of victim status. And now the new victim status is, oh, but my phone is buzzing and, you know, there's all this stuff and whatever. And actually, you know, there are apps that you can put in place that will restrict your access to those things at certain times. So once you start to think about attention management again, those two to three hours on my phone, I can't get to Instagram. I can't even get to Google Chrome. Um, I can get to WhatsApp to send a message out. I don't see messages coming in. You know, all these things are, they're set up through an app that I'm using called Quality Time. I was just about and to say, what's the app? <laughs> yeah, the app's called Quality Time. There's another one um, which is quite popular called Freedom. Freedom, yeah. Um, which works across desktop and has a, a mobile equivalent called Off Time. Um, but they all do basically the same thing. But it's, you know, taking control of that and saying, right, so the phase of work that I'm in right now is my high quality attention. And so for this period, I want to just basically treat myself like an absolute child um, and not rely on my willpower because your willpower is not going to beat a thousand people in Silicon Valley designing this to be as addictive as possible. Like it's just going to, you're going to lose every day. So having it set up so that you can make one really good, bold decision once, and then you're restricting your access for those two to three hours um, is, ju is just a much better way to go. And so I've, I've been, really been seeing that a lot over the last couple of years, uh, just being just a bigger, a bigger and bigger problem. And, you know, I think there's a whole nother, uh, set of societal, uh, questions around that in terms of how people get sort of siloed in their thinking and everyone's part of some extreme tribe or another now, like no, like no one's really thinking about the rich diversity of societies anymore. Everyone's kind of camped in their little corners. Right. And so I yeah. think, I think there's some much bigger questions around how that technology shapes society, but even just how that shapes your own attention yeah. and then what that means for your productivity and the work that you do. Um, I think it's, for me, it's the thing that I'm often, for me, it's the thing that, you know, I often need to fix the most in me because this stuff is really addictive, but it's also the stuff that I'm kind of really seeing that, that people need out there. So looking forward to, to putting that one out there. Maybe, I, I don't know, I'm just suggesting it, maybe you could call it stop blaming your freaking phone. I don't know, anyway. That's good, yeah, I might steal that. <laughs> but I think you should definitely do something provocative though. I like, I stop like blaming that. your phone, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, okay, and, 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 I, and we can't really, I can't talk to you without talking about the inbox because, you know, it seems to be um, one of the big things, again, that comes up time and time again when people talk about you you know is that that did that system did you come up with that system or again was it a, a, an amalgamation of different things because it seems like it's kind of a bit of a signature for you uh, it's become a bit of a signature thing i mean the the term inbox era was not my idea so that was a guy called merlin mann who it was an american um kind of productivity guy um who still does a podcast but he's not really kind of talking about that stuff anymore um so he came up with that and then um, what I tried to do with the book was basically say, okay, most people are using Outlook. Here's how you apply that kind of inbox zero philosophy, which basically is about uh, trying to make decisions as upfront as possible and to not be happy with a default, which is 300, 500, or, or in your case, 1,000 uh, emails in the inbox. Um, and the philosophy is really simple, which is that if you've got 1,000 emails in your inbox, there might be something somewhere in that thousand buried in the pile that really matters to you. Um, that is something that you're either going to miss, it's going to fall between the cracks, it's going to blow up in your face later when it has to become back to the top of the list. And also generally, people are going to have you down in that category of someone who is going to miss emails or, or things, you know, things do get lost. Um, so, you know, 
like getting to getting your inbox to zero on its own is completely meaningless but getting your inbox to zero in order to be satisfied that you've done the thinking you need to do and there are no surprises left in your inbox and you can go home on a friday happy in that knowledge um is really powerful so it's not for everybody because some people just if 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 you've got a thousand emails in your inbox and it never stresses you and you don't care and and you know that none of those emails matter don't bother getting to zero like why waste your time um but actually for people who you know are, are regularly managing uh you know that very intense flow of information back and forth um it becomes just a really good measure of of how on top of things you are because one of the aspects of 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 doing it in that way is that you then move stuff that you're then still working on uh, into a separate folder called action so i can see that there's five things in my action folder there are five things i still need to work on or there are now 30 i'm really busy right so i can start to see uh, and just kind of gauge where i'm at and and i tend to sort of find fi- between 15 and 20 is the time when uh, i start to panic a little bit that i'm going <laughs> to maybe miss something that's in that folder because you know if you think about how many things you can retain in your short term memory um, you know that game. I went to the shops and I bought, and someone yes, says a thing. Yeah, yeah. No one gets past fifteen in that game, right? So that's for me. That's Never. always a good. It's really hard. I mean, Darren Brown can do it, um, but like for most people playing that game, somewhere around twelve to fifteen is is the point where you fail. So that for me is a really important number in terms of short term memory. You don't want to be holding anywhere near that number of things in your head because you know you're going to drop something. Cool. Um, so, so that's really where that comes from in terms of having the action folder as a separate thing. Um, and then what's great about it is because you've got, um, you know, just a better handle on what the inbox becomes for, which is just where things land, not where things live. Then what starts to happen is you can set up little folders and rules and actually, you know, Outlook's doing that, um, for us a, a bit more these days in terms of the focused inbox and the other inbox and stuff. But you can have, you know, this kind of notifications taking certain emails away or, uh, showing certain emails up in red rather than in black and all those kind of things to just make the job of processing that easier. Um, and it's one of those things where I think if you if you do the, in the book, there's kind of like a two-hour uh, sort of hacking process exercise, basically. Um, and it replicates the workshop that we do, which is a three-hour workshop where 96% of people get to zero. So it kind of feels like this, feels like this really... Uh, unachievable goal for lots of people, but actually 96% in three hours. And, you know, within the book, I mean, I, I, the irony of all of this is that I get loads of emails sent to me, which is screenshots of other people's inboxes now at zero. <laughs> the mind fills up with those. But I think it's, um, you know, it's one of those things where once you just invest that time, it's only a couple of hours, you get it to zero. What then happens is you only have that one day to deal with. So you end up spending less time thinking about your inbox, less time in your inbox, and amazing things happen when you get outside your inbox. That's always the, yeah. uh, you know, the sort of the end point is to not be obsessed with email anymore and to be, you know, to be comfortable with sw- switching it off for an hour or switching off for a day and knowing that you've only got that day, that day to catch up on or that hour to catch up on or whatever. Brilliant. I, I know, I, I mean, I'm, I don't work in corporate now, but I know in corporate it was more of a sort of, um, uh, sort of gave, gave me more anxiety and it gets does get to the point where you feel, it feels like the universe like it's too much for you to even contemplate to uh, to deal with it because you're not doing something else you should be doing so I shall look forward to trying that out probably when I go yeah. on holiday <laughs> I mean the other thing is um, uh, frequency and, and longevity are linked right so if you're getting 600 emails a day 
Um, you know, say if you're getting 100 emails a day, you might want to go back two, three, three, two, three, four months and look at the content of all of those emails. If you're getting 600 emails a day, probably anything older than a week doesn't really matter, right? Yeah. So once you're in that high frequency kind of mode, then, you know, it is, it's actually in some ways easier to get to zero because email becomes, if you're getting 600, 600 emails a day, they're throwaway things. Yes. People don't take it seriously. And you can, you can start to sort of play around with that to create the kind of cutoff points to say, you know, actually here's, here's what we need to focus on, just the stuff from the last three days rather than the stuff from the last three months. Cool. Thank you for that. That's brilliant. Okay. And, and what have you, what seems to be coming up a lot in the productivity space that I'm sort of hearing just because I'm doing research for this show and this month we're seeing productivity is around energy management. Is that something you cover off in the book and, or, or is it something that you look at besides the book? Yeah. I mean, I would, I would in some ways say that energy and attention are very, very closely linked. Yeah. Um, so you don't have attention without energy. Um, so in some ways, energy management is kind of, kind of my whole attention management thing. Um, I've been looking at that quite a lot myself from a different perspective over the last couple of years. Um, I was really inspired by, there was a study that found that um, just, I was really inspired. You'll, you'll understand why I was inspired in a second. It, it study found that only, only 15 minutes of exercise, um, created, um, just a massive change in terms of the heat map of the brain. So basically more of your brain is switched on awake, you know, ready to go and attentive if you've done 15 minutes of exercise. So you don't have to spend an hour in the gym. You don't have to be, you know, uh, some, you know, long distance cyclist and marathon runner and all these kind of things, just really simple, 15, 20 minutes, little jog, brisk walk, whatever wow. is enough to switch the brain on. Um, HIIT training is another one, you know, you do this yeah. sort of high intensity, 15 minute type things. So I got really into that way of thinking of just exercise little and often as a way of kind of waking the brain up and all that sort of thing. Um, the other thing that I really got into a couple of years ago is I hired, I hired a nutritionist um, to really think about how the food I was eating creates energy. Um, and just had some really like amazing results where I started to feel like I, I had loads more energy in myself and in my life and everything else, but also really felt like I was just more focused and more switched on at work as well. Um, and so that nutritionist, um, is a lady called Colette Hennigan. And over the last couple of years, we've been talking about how, you know, what's the link here between nutrition and productivity? How do you eat to have better energy? And basically how you, how do you eat your way to success? <laughs> I like that. Um, what it's ended up with is we're now, um, we've, we've got a deadline looming actually for um, a book around this whole area. So the book's going to be called Work Fuel, and it's basically the Productivity Ninja's Guide to Nutrition. So for me, I think this is just a huge piece in terms of energy. I mean, there's loads of, um, you know, there's some really specific stuff you can start to think about in terms of your diet. And, and for most people, um, you know, a big one is just eating more proteins, particularly in the morning that fires up your metabolism. It gets you going all that kind of thing. Um, Colette's thing is that actually the most important meal of the day is lunch. Oh. Um, so actually you can get away with, uh, to some extent having a, um, cause she's all, one of her things is also having a, a, a decent fasting time. So having 12 hours out of 24 where you fast yeah. is a really useful thing for metabolism. Um, but actually it's better to do that than do the kind of five, two, putting your body into um, sort of extreme fasting uh, kind of thing. So, um, yeah, like you can miss breakfast, but then if you have a really good lunch, it's going to power you, you know, through the day. And lunch is the one that most people skip and 
tend to not put the focus on because it's everything's busy it's the middle of the day or you know the classic al desco thing i've got my tesco sandwich i'm sat on my desk yeah i'm having my lunch or whatever so she really puts a lot of emphasis on lunch but just having protein in those first couple of meals breakfast and lunch um, really matters one thing that everybody can do that um is really helpful in terms of energy is um what she calls eat the rainbow so basically make sure your plate has a really good array of colors different vegetables have different nutrients so you might have a really amazing salad but if it's all green there are certain nutrients you're going to miss if you don't have some carrot or some beetroot or oh, something else that's of different color so eat the rainbow is a really good uh, principle one of the principles i really love because i'm not a very good cook is neutrophil is better than beautiful so kind of shunning this whole instagram thing of beautiful meals and actually what you put into the food is much more important than what it looks like when it comes out of the pan and it's all mine's all sloppy and brown but it's got amazing stuff in it right yeah, yeah, um, so we've written a whole book um that basically details these kind of things it's got recipes for every meal and also some really amazing stuff that i've learned over the last year just working with her that i i've never really seen in any other books so uh, just how to read food labels, um, how to shop in a supermarket, which is basically the outsides. Just eat from the outside and you're fine. The middle, stay away from. Um, her whole philosophy of um, food made from plants, not food made in plants. Oh, I like um, that. So yeah. really starting to just think about when I look at this list of ingredients, do I understand what that thing is? You know, a carrot, I know what a carrot is, but like sodium hydroxychloride or whatever it is, it's like, that's not a thing. That's not a food. You know, and basically all the best um, things that you buy um, from anywhere are the things where you look at the ingredient list and there's less than five things on it, right? So it's just like all those little um, simple tips and tricks. And I think for me, um, you know, there's a lot of studies that show basically you can get an extra 20% energy by eating well. So that's like getting another day in your week. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so that's when you start to see uh, the impact that, that can have just in terms of your energy levels. I think it's a huge, a huge piece to kind of add to that whole productivity conversation, I think. Uh, and when's that book coming out, Graham? Um, that will be coming out, I think it's the end of March next year. So March 2019. Cool. Um, we, we have a deadline of the end of July. And then, it, you know, that's kind of how long it takes so, in the publishing yeah. world um, to get through. Um, but we're going to be doing some talks before the book comes out. And uh, probably making a little bit more noise online. So if you just search um, hashtag WorkFuel, uh, you'll probably find me and Colette uh, talking even now. Brilliant, brilliant. And and I want to talk about your speaking in a second, but I know you're working on a book at the moment, which is almost at the deadline. When could you tell me just a bit about that book and when it comes out, so if people want to find it? Yeah, so there's actually two. So I've um, the two that I've already mentioned basically. So the um, the Productivity Ninja five year anniversary one, which has got right. the, the new in so that'll be out January um, next year and then the work field book with Colette is out March next year and cool. um, what we're what we're basically getting into is sort of launching a little mini series of of productivity ninjas guide to books so the work field is going to be the productivity ninjas guide to nutrition uh, we will do a separate productive ninjas guide to email one on meetings and then ver and probably an apps book and various other ones so my publisher is kind of keen to to kind of move the productivity ninja brand into a more kind of you know um, b2c facing space and kind of um, extend the range of productivity ninja books beyond the original productivity ninja one as well um, cool. but it's been weird actually uh, just going back and reading so i wrote that book it was originally self-published for about a year before it came out with with icon books um, so it's about six years ago i wrote it and like going back and reading stuff that you wrote six years ago um, it's just a really weird thing i have to say i don't really 
ever open the pages of Productivity Ninja because it just I just have this weird block about it. Like I feel I'm probably going to be embarrassed by what I read. Or <laughs> um, and what was nice was that I opened up, you know, I mean, I opened up the book, but also at the same time I got sent the Word document, you know, all the pages scrolling and scrolling. And there were bits that I was like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> so it was actually a nice surprise. There's a few things that just made me laugh. So there's a lot of references to Blackberries, stuff like that, which, you know, so it's funny how technology changes even when you haven't noticed, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And, uh, oh, you could do this in Lotus Notes. <laughs> like, well, because <laughs> you could if you wanted to. Uh, but it, it was actually just really nice going back and kind of revisiting uh, some of those first principles and, and actually feeling like, yeah. I, I still stand by pretty much every word in this book, apart from the ones that say Lotus Notes and Blackberry and, and various other things like that. So, um, so that was kind of a nice thing. So I've been back through and I've, I've rewritten quite a few of the sections and, and just given it a bit of a, a kind of uh, 2018, 2019 feel rather than a, a 2012 kind of feel. Um, and then adding this new chapter in about, about phones and then the work field one as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. And so how did you get into speaking? Because you speak as well. Is it, is it a big part of what you do or is it just a side thing? How does that work? Um, it's, a really, it's a really funny one. I, it tends to sort of just go in, in phases, really. So um, I, I stay away from um, running the training within, uh, within the business. So Think Productive runs a lot of workshops. Um, we have a whole bunch of, of ninjas around the country that go into companies and run those workshops for us. So I try and stay in the background and away from that and kind of um, here in my little shed um, writing books. We do often get situations where if a company wants to do a big rollout, with you know running lots of workshops across the business often the natural starting point for that is to do a keynote with me bring the author in give everybody a copy of the book and then whet the appetite so that then when the ninjas go in it's like they're already kind of pushing on a bit of an open door in a way yeah so i do a few of those um and then i also have um a speaking agent who you know sometimes just recommends me to different keynotes they tend to be either um kind of companies doing away days or kind of conference keynotes and that kind of thing uh, and I really enjoy doing it. It's, um, it's one of those where uh, there's just no substitute for just being in a big room and just the focus that you have to uh, find in yourself to do that and to just ho- kind of hold that space and hold all the stuff in your head and all the rest of it. So it kind of it kind of wrecks me for about three days, you know, <laughs> the day before and a couple of days afterwards. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't think I could be doing that every, every day or, or, or even every week, but when I do them, I really enjoy it. And, um, it's, yeah, it's a nice kind of, nice kind of part of the mix really. And how do you have a, a sort of talk that you do, which is sort of off the shelf now, or is it bespoke every time you go out? How, how does that work? It's a bit of both, to be honest. So I have a, there's a set kind of, there's a set one hour, um, keynote, which is based around the nine characteristics of the productivity ninja, um, and then often what happens is a company will say, hey, our focus at the moment is this. And, you know, can you talk a bit more about that as well? Um, and so and I quite like that because it means that some of it is really well trodden paths for me. It's really, you know, it's content that I know really well and have a lot of confidence about. And then there's always the bits where it's like I'm doing this bit for the first time ever and stuff like that. And that keeps it interesting. I think if you're doing the same talk word for word over and over again. And I've seen people on the circuit do that, right? Where you see them do exactly the same, yeah. you know, that you've seen them do a year ago. And you're just thinking, man, um, you know, how, like, how does that work? How do you keep the enthusiasm for that? So I like to, to mess it up a little bit and, um, yeah, you know, just, just have those kind of extra elements that get kind of woven in as well. And I've had quite a few comments of people saying, 
um, like, how long have you worked here? And I'd say about an hour and a half. And they're like, <laughs> what? It just, you know, you're talking our language. And it's like, well, that's no accident. So I do quite a lot of, um, I'll, I'll do quite a lot of back and forth and, you know, at least a couple of uh, sort of conference calls with the, the organizers and stuff before to really understand what's the context here, what else is going on in the business, what's going on in the world, what do you think about Brexit, like all these different things that can impact how they're going to be thinking on that day. Um, so that when you get into the space, it's like it just feels like you're one of them and you're part of the team and you're, you're bringing in the, the corporate outlaw, uh, you know, kind of outside perspective, but actually you're, you're doing it with a real good knowledge of, of where they're coming from. So that's kind of how I like to approach those kind of things. Brilliant. And how do you make sure your talks are engaging? What is it? Have you got any particular tricks that you do, you know, in terms of the structure or how does that work? Um, we try and do a little bit of, um, uh, I always say we when I'm talking about like, like books. And stuff. It is just me. It's like a weird schizophrenia. Um, I mean, I try and do uh, a little bit of, I always try and do some Q&A as part of it. I'll often try and do some kind of people working in pairs as well. So digesting the stuff that that I've just given them and, and kind of sharing that with, with the person next to them or with other colleagues or whatever. So I'll try and do those kind of things. Um, I've yet to, I mean, the obvious trick I should be doing is dressing up in a ninja costume, right? <laughs> um, which has never happened. Uh, although, yeah, there's been several requests over the years. Um, but I think, and I suppose the other thing I've learned as a speaker over the years is I, as you've probably noticed, I tend to speak quite fast and I tend to have like a hundred ideas an hour and, you know, hundred ideas a second or whatever it is. And so I think often the, the most important thing about engagement is kind of giving the audience time to breathe. Um, so just having a moment within, you know, within a keynote, you know, if you're moving on to the next topic, just learning to pause and learning to just kind of leave the gaps, leave the space and, you know, and, and, and give them that time to kind of reflect and digest um, and that's been something that does not come that naturally to me at all. So it's been a thing that um, I've definitely had to learn the hard way over the years. Um, but I think I've got much better at it as time's gone on. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you for sharing so much uh, information and some great tips and everything else. I want to ask you about your podcast in a little bit because I do want to give that a plug as well. But I've got some standard questions I, I ask. Um, cool. First one is, what is the best thing that speaking has done for you or your brand or business? What's the best thing that speaking has done? Well, I think for me, the nice thing about speaking, particularly once I've, once I've got a book um, that's out there as well, is that often speaking is the time where people come up to me at the end and they say, hey, I read your book a year ago and this is what I've implemented. So for me, I love that connection, um, particularly on the kind of one-to-one um, basis afterwards and whatever. You get the connection with the audience and you can see if stuff's landing or not to a certain degree but there's nothing better that for me than meeting people who've like meeting someone who has bought your book is incredible but then they've spent like six hours reading it and a whole nother bunch of hours putting stuff into practice and then they're just coming up to just tell you how they've done that like that just blows my mind every time um and so that's the thing that um you know even just thinking about it it's just like wow that is just a huge just a huge thrill really. Um, so I'd say that's probably the biggest thing. Um, I think it has, you know, it has massive benefits in terms of business case and all that stuff, but you know, really like for me, it's the, it's the time when I get out of the house, <laughs> and, and like, you know, in, in a, in a sort of business sense, it's the time where I go out and meet people and, and sort of talk to people one-on-one, you know, I think, um, obviously you get stuff over Twitter and email and all that sort of stuff, you know, and people sort of connect, but I, I think, 
you know, for me, connecting face to face is um, just the most powerful form of feedback. So that's always the the, the best thing for me. Excellent. And what, have you had a bad gig? Like, what's your worst gig? Your speaking gig? Is there anything that's gone, um, or have you? Oh, something's popped into you. <laughs> there was one. I'll tell you one, which is really like one of the first times I ever spoke in public, which was way before Think Productive. But it was um, it was uh, I was running the I was running youth volunteering um, at the University of Birmingham, and I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. <laughs> I. So I had this whole speech about how people think of volunteering as being a thing that only older people do. And, you know, we need to rethink volunteering to be something that young people can do as well and that students should be doing and all the rest of it. And it's this kind of impassioned plea. And I was halfway through this impassioned plea and I looked up and the audience, I realised, were all over the age of about 50 because they were all like people working for the charities. They weren't students. And I suddenly realised that this speech was just going down like an absolute lead balloon. Um, quite rightly because here's this precocious kid telling them that their form of volunteering <laughs> like is, <laughs> is uh, somehow invalid and, and it should be young people doing it it should be fun and all the rest of it um so that was just this thing where it, i don't what can you do in that circumstance like literally like it still haunts me to this day because I, I was halfway through it and it's like all i've got is what i've prepared which i know is going to just make this worse but i don't really have anything else i can say and um, I'm not, I wasn't equipped at the age of 23 or whatever to be able to kind of ad lib or whatever. Um, so I just had to plow through this awful thing. <laughs> <That was really laughs> um, in more recent years, I've actually done, I did quite a few courses in um, improvised comedy, um, which is, which maybe was slightly subconsciously fueled by that experience of just like, okay, so sometimes you just need to react in the moment and be able to just hold a space and hold an audience with absolutely nothing and that'd be okay. And that's basically what improv comedy is, right? So like someone just gives you one word and I've done it where you, they give you one word and you do a 30 minute musical with another 10 people with songs and all of it's completely made up on the spot. Um, and I think if you can do that, then you can throw your notes away and just speak to the audience and stuff. Um, so yeah, like I think probably if I was in that situation again, I'd, I'd probably react better. Um, but yeah, that was that was that wasn't a great gig. It's <laughs> a tumbleweed, probably. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, cool. Now, um, what's the one book you've read that's had, apart from your own, that's had most impact on your life and why? Wow, what's the one book I've read? Um, the one that really massively inspired me was um, reading "Long Walk to Freedom" Nelson Mandela's oh, autobiography, um, and I think the reason for that was realizing what a clear sense of purpose he had um, obviously going through just huge um you know uh, obstacles and barriers and, and everything else but he just never lost sight of what his purpose in life was what he wanted to achieve um and you know within that sense of purpose was just a very big sense of of compassion um forgiveness for the people who were holding him hostage and just a belief that he was right and that um, he had a truth that he was fighting for and that it was worth fighting for. And I think that always just, you know, it's weird, isn't it? Like often people say, who are your sort of business heroes? And I don't have many. And in fact, most of the people who are put on a pedestal as the big famous entrepreneurs, I think are generally not very good people. <laughs> like, I, don't, I just don't, you know, um, I mean, you know, I'm not going to 
name names and uh, and badmouth people but like i i don't a, a lot of the kind of uh, standard uh kind of business role models i look at them and i think i don't really respect you very much um but i think you know so for me it i think business like life needs to be more values driven and like values need to come first and so that was really why that's why i'm saying nelson mandela and not you know Richard Branson or something. Well, well, that was going to be my, one of my questions was if you could choose anyone, because there's the book thing. And then if you could choose anyone from, from, you know, fact, sort of alive or dead, fictional, non-fictional to be your mentor, who would you choose and why? Would it be him or I can, I can, I'm <clears throat> the book, would there be anyone else that you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like it's too easy for me to just say yes, Nelson Mandela uh, <laughs> after that last answer. But, um, but yeah, probably, I mean, probably someone along those kind of lines, right. Rather than um, necessarily a kind of business celebrity. Yeah. yeah <laughs> cool. And last, last question then, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever got and why is it the best piece? The best piece of business advice. Um, I mean, I would say, you know, again, something along the lines of, of values, I think, um, would, you know, the, the, the advice that I tend to uh, enjoy the most or try and or, or get inspired by the most tends to be the stuff that is more uh, coming from a place of um, like ethics and values. I do think there's, there's a gen, I mean, you know, the best piece of advice I like to sort of tell myself on a regular basis is, is basically like, if you, if you're making decisions because you know, um, that you're doing the right thing, um, you know, and you're doing, you're looking after the people who are, um, you know, part of your team or the, the people who are helping you to get places or whatever. Um, I mean, I, I remember reading, um, Duncan Bannatyne's book, um, which was about how he, with the ice uh, cream vans. Yeah. Yeah. So he started with absolutely nothing. He yeah. built his business from ice cream vans. Then he went into old people's care homes and stuff. But there was a line somewhere near the beginning where he basically says, do you know what? I always looked after all the people I worked with. I never shafted anybody. Anyone can do this, you know, and it really inspired me both the, the idea that anybody can do this, but also the idea that you don't have to, you, you know, I think we often do have these societal views of business people that are all, you know, they're all about shafting everybody and they're all about, uh, you know, sort of just being so focused on winning that actually nothing else matters and people don't matter and you trample over everybody to get there and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, I, I, I think it's, um, you know, I think that Duncan Bannatyne book was a really uh, sort of strong one for me because of that, you know, it, it, it's actually, you know, there, there are different ways to do this and you can do this in a, in a much more ethical kind of way. Uh, Nick Jenkins, actually, for the guy from uh, Moonpig, um, used to be a Dragon's Den uh, dragon as well. So I interviewed him on the podcast and, um, you know, again, spent a couple of hours with him. He told me about how when he sold Moonpig, he made sure that everybody in that company got a really nice, you know, bonus and, uh, they all got, they all shared in the wealth of the sale basically. And he had no obligation to do that. That's purely because he thought this is the right thing to do. And it's, it's kind of things like that, which don't necessarily get celebrated. They don't even necessarily become very widely known. No. Um, but it proves that you can operate in that kind of way. Nice. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, we just, you just mentioned the podcast. So can you tell um, just people briefly the name of the podcast um, and the kind of things that you do on the podcast and where they can find out more about it? 
Yeah, so the podcast is called Beyond Busy, and the website is getbeyondbusy.com, uh, or you can just search Beyond Busy on your, you know, your podcast app of choice. Um, the idea of it is to, uh, is to look at uh, a kind of triangle of subjects and the, the connectivity between productivity, uh, happiness and success, and work-life balance. And it really came about because I was, I was getting a lot of um, feedback from people saying, hey, I've really nailed productivity, but now my work-life balance is really suffering, or actually I've been really focused on work-life balance and I really feel like I'm no longer motivated to achieve stuff or whatever. And I think there's just such a nice relationship between those three themes of how do you define happiness in your life and work? Um, how do you define productivity? And then how do you define your work-life balance? Um, so I basically do fairly long-form interviews. So they're, they're usually about an hour long. Um, and so the idea is to really deep dive into kind of often taboo subjects. So, you know, money, yeah. uh, the sort of uh, interlacing of uh, work and personal relationships, all these kind of things that often you know, don't get talked about. And I interview everybody from, I've interviewed Olympic gold medalists, I've interviewed dragons from Dragon's Den and CEOs, uh, founders, charity people. Um, I've interviewed professional clowns. Uh, all kinds of different people, and I think the only the only kind of singular uh, theme that runs through it is that humans are weird. And <laughs> I think uh, what's interesting about that is that that then creates its its own whole tapestry of of um, you know sort of bits of advice and, and kind of little uh, golden nuggets of of wisdom um, from people who I just think are doing interesting stuff or have interesting stories to tell. So. Um, yeah, so it's called Beyond Busy. I'm on a little bit of a uh, sabbatical from it right now while I'm in this book mode, and then I'll be picking it back up in the autumn. But there's a whole back catalogue of, of episodes um, that you can go and check out on there as well. Brilliant. Thank you for that. And so people can find out more about, if they want to work with um, Think Productive, um, if, you, if they want your guys, your ninjas to come in and sort them out, um, they would go to, what's the web address for Think Productive? Yeah, so it's the global one's thinkproductive.com, and then in the UK it's thinkproductive.co.uk. And I'll put a link in the show notes. And then if they want to find out about you personally, Graham, where would they go for that? Just GrahamAlcott.com, which is Graham with, uh, Graham with an H and Alcott with two L's and two T's. Brilliant. And are you on social media? Can they find you there as well? That's a, that's a funny point. Um, so I've just, uh, so I'm not on Facebook at all. Haven't been for a while. Uh, I've just sort of gone off Twitter for a bit while I'm writing. Uh, so if, if you want to connect, the best places to get hold of me is there's a contact form on GrahamAlcott.com. Cool. Uh, or on LinkedIn. Those are the usual ways to, to reach me. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, getting more productive myself, <laughs> getting my inbox down and, and putting into practice all the other great things that you shared. And uh, good luck with the reprint and the new book. And uh, yeah, I'll look forward to reading those. Thank you ever so much for your time. Cool. Thank you. So when you get your inbox to zero, you'll send me a screenshot, right? Yeah, so I can clog yours up. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Sounds good. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you go. What things about that interview resonated with you? You know, I've noticed my inbox creeping back up again, so it's great to have this as a reminder to get things back on track. Now, Graham is actually running a live course now, which I've linked to in the show notes. So if you had an aha moment about your productivity and you want to do more, then you can have a look at that or, of course, pick up his book. Now, one of the things in my world that can also help you focus and get traction 
uh, is accountability, support and coaching, all of which you can get in the Speaking Club Live. It's a safe space to test content and messaging, practice your speaking and get feedback from peers and coaching from me. And here's what Jackie, one of the club, has to say about it. I joined the Speaking Club Live after doing the Snackable Story Challenge with Sarah and I am so glad that I made that decision. Having done the Snackable Story Challenge, I found it so interesting that I really wanted to to know more and the Speaking Club Live has certainly given me that. I didn't really have any worries about coming into it, apart from the fact I was sort of thinking, well, how are we going to do the coaching sessions when there's a number of people there? Well, that worry is soon dispelled because there's absolutely no problem. Sarah manages it absolutely beautifully. And you always feel that you've got more than enough time to discuss anything that you want to discuss. And the great thing about it is that you also get to learn from what the others are doing as well. And you get their feedback. So it's a win-win all round, to be honest. The thing that I have found with the Speaking Club Live is that it's given me the both the confidence and the ability now to be more of me. And that's what Sarah gives you during those coaching sessions. Um, yes, there's a structure to the way you do things, but she's always coming up with new ideas, new ways of looking at things that that basically bring out more of you. And if there's one thing I've learned from this, it is that your brand and who you are is perfectly okay to be that person. And that has, is getting me more engagement and more uptake on, on what I'm doing. So I would certainly recommend the Speaking Club Live to anyone. Come along, join us, give it a go. And you can find out more about the club at saraharcher.co.uk slash club. Thanks for joining me again. And if you do get value from the show, go and leave a rating or review over at ratethispodcast.com slash TSC. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, don't you forget, go out, grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye bye.